You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. So here's a plug for my wife's cookie business. About 20 years ago, she started making chocolate chip cookies. And I'm not talking about the buy the refrigerated dough in a tube and slice it into cookie discs and then throw it in the oven and every cookie tastes exactly the same as everybody else in your neighborhood. She now makes the best chocolate chip cookies around and yes i'm her husband and yes i'm prejudiced about it but i'm also telling the truth i have seen dozens of times uh, when someone's offered a cookie for the first time uh, they're in a conversation they take a bite of the cookie they stop in mid-sentence look at the cookie in their hand just like their hand just caught on fire or something they are phenomenally good in fact here's here's a rundown of some of the things that have been said about them over the years they're amazing Uh, they're phenomenal all caps was tweeted just recently Uh, One man said they're a spiritual experience. Slap your mama good. If you're not from the South, that may not ring true. But if you are from the South, you know what that means. Uh, The best cookies I've ever had in my life. I've heard that so many times. uh, I can't even begin to count. So here's the thing. She opened a cookie business last year. It's called Sweet Life Cookies. It's right here in Nashville. And she's just got her website to where she can take online orders. So uh, these are small batch. Uh, she's a small batch bakery. She doesn't even have a storefront. It's, she works in a commercial kitchen, but it's fantastic. And now she can ship. So if you'll go to mysweetlifecookies.com, she has three kinds available right now. The original chocolate chip, double chocolate mint, which is exactly what it sounds like, and then uh, the classic white chocolate macadamia nut, available in dozens or half dozens. Shipping is via USPS, and it's available countrywide. So uh, not internationally yet, though, folks. Sorry about that. Uh, But it's right here in the States. So that's MySweetLifeCookies.com, MySweetLifeCookies.com. And uh, I encourage you to order some today. And I can assure you, you will not be sorry. My guest today on Uncommentary is Sarah Smith. Sarah is a Metro reporter at the Houston Chronicle, where she covers housing and nonprofits. Before going to Houston, she investigated sexual abuse in the independent fundamental Baptist movement for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. She also spent two years as a fellow at ProPublica. Send her your food recommendations and story tips to sarah.smith at cron.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at sarahesmith23. Sarah Smith, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you so much for having me. So um, the weather in Dallas today, are y'all going to have a hurricane or anything like that? Oh, you're in Houston. Uh, in Houston. Yes. And the minute I say no, we're not going to have a hurricane, I feel like I'm bringing one on. So I'm going to decline <laughs> to comment. <laughs> you're not the weather woman. You're the weather maker. Exactly. All right. So uh, you're at the Houston Chronicle, but that hasn't been long. Um, why don't you give everybody a little bit of a 411 about who Sarah Smith is? Oh dear, that's a loaded question, isn't it? Um, I so I've been at the Chronicle for the last three weeks, but before that, uh, starting in February of eighteen, I was at the Star Telegram and covered Southern Baptists and Independent Fundamental Baptists. All right, where'd you go to? Where'd you go to school? Uh, University of Pennsylvania, up in Philadelphia. Okay, cool. Um, so. The story about um, Southwestern Seminary and Paige Patterson uh, and the things that had gone on there and I guess some of the history uh, that came out this spring and summer was uh, where I first started finding you on uh, on Twitter. 
and following some <laughs> of your stories. Um, funny story that I actually, I don't, I don't think I ever told you this, that um, I ran into a lady at the convention who, from all appearances, was writing a, a news story, and she had long, dark hair. And uh, I said, is your name Sarah? And she said, yeah. And so I started congratulating her and telling her how much I appreciated the work she was doing and all this kind of stuff. And then it just went really sideways. And she's like, I don't think I'm the person. <laughs> See, the your your mistake was in not looking for the curls. That's, that is That's true. That's my marker. That is true. <laughs> You'd wear a flat iron out in about 20 minutes. Oh God. It's, I used to try in high school sometimes and it took two and a half hours and lasted maybe seven. And then I gave up. Wow. That's insane. Um, so how did you, how did you get involved in the, uh, the Southwestern and Paige Patterson story back in the spring? You, you're not an alumnus, I don't think, right? You're not like on the newsletter. No. <laughs> um, I actually, started my foray into the Baptist world with the independent fundamental Baptists. And I stumbled on that story in March, April, really? I want to say. You and were so, already working on that? Yeah. Okay. And so I figured at that point when all the Paige Patterson drama started blowing up that I would just be the catch-all for religion at the Star-Telegram. Okay. Well, being in, uh, being in Texas, that's, that's a pretty big bucket. Yes, quite. <laughs> <laughs> So as you as you delved into the Southwestern and Paige Patterson uh, thing, d- separate a little bit from the article we're going to talk about in a, uh, in a little bit, uh, what drew you to it? As <clears throat> because there was obviously the video was out about him ogling the the sixteen year old girl or fifteen. And then it was, there were a couple of more times that that particular story had popped up in other sermons that he'd given. Did you limit your um, your writing to that, or was it expanded to some of the financial dealings and how the trustees were getting involved? How how extensive was your reporting on that? I mostly stuck to uh, his comments on women, the allegations that he discouraged rape victims from reporting, and then all the fallout with the seminary and do we fire him, do we not fire him, do we make him emeritus, do we give him compensation, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so that comes out, um, you're writing a story on independent fundamental Baptist churches and for listeners who may not understand the difference between a Baptist church and a Baptist church, there, there are some, uh, there, there are some where it probably doesn't matter. And then there aren't as many as there should be where it really does matter. And one of those is people who are in positions of power aren't often questioned as deeply as they should be. Uh, but in the American context anyway, the Southern Baptist Convention is a an affiliation of about 44,000 Baptist churches, all of whom have agreed to a specific doctrinal statement. It's called the Baptist Faith and Message. And the thing that really connects them beyond that is they pool their money for missions and ministry. That's the, the real thumbnail. Uh, you're, you were working with or working on a story that had to do with um, and I guess it's not even really an, an official title, is it? Independent Fundamental mm-hmm. Baptist? But it is the proper descriptor because these are Baptist churches who aren't technically affiliated with anyone, although they're kind of loosely affiliated with each other. Um, and they're, um, and so the highest ranking person in the quote denomination is always the pastor of the local church. There's no denominational structure. There's no trustees. There's no anybody like that. So that's just for an aside for those who may not understand why there's Baptist and Baptist. So you're working. I on didn't a story. understand it in a long for a long time. Believe me, 
It was a very steep learning curve. And and it, it's really it's really odd because when you a lot of people who hear, who think about the Southern Baptist Convention, they think about it in the context of like the Presbyterians or the United Methodists, where there is a denominational structure where every you know bishop or every pastor there is some amount of accountability that they can't just do anything that they want to do. But in both Southern Baptist life and in all the way down the line in independent fundamental Baptist life, the pastor doesn't isn't under anyone's authority. There's no board. There's no hierarchy. There's no bishop. So uh, it sounds like you found that it was a very fertile field for all kinds of abuse. Yes, um, there are deacon boards, of course, in independent fundamental Baptist churches, but more often than not, it's they don't have a ton of power, and it's the pastors where it is essentially law. So you found how many victims or how many people who are willing to make allegations and or, excuse me, had already been to court over these kinds of behaviors? There were over 400 allegations of sexual misconduct in the independent fundamental Baptist churches. And of course, I'm sure there's some that we overlooked. Um, And I am sure that there's more that just haven't come out yet. And this was in 40, 40 churches I mean, I'm sorry, 40 states and then several other countries? Mm -hmm. 40 states up through Canada. One incident took place on a U.S. Air Force base in Japan, as I recall. So in these these contexts of these independent churches that don't have any authorities over them, uh, one of the things that you mentioned in the story was that often or always any kind of abuse allegation was never taken to the police. It was always kept within the church to be dealt with first. Was that like totally across the board? No, there are, I mean, there are some pastors out there in the independent fundamental Baptist world who are going to take this to police and have taken allegations to police, but the overarching mindset of most churches that I explored at the very least is it's an in-house problem and you're conditioned to trust your pastor to do the right thing with it. And if the pastor says, we're not taking this to police, um, that's what you're going to do. And in many cases that I was exploring, there wasn't even a thought to, or a discussion about calling law enforcement. Now, was there a now I'm familiar with some um, smaller uh, organizations or smaller networks of churches um, where there have been these types of behaviors where there's been an abuse allegation and it's been kept inside the church. And they have a specific theology of you have to uh, directly confront your accuser. And so their refusal to go to the police was based on a theological construct that this is a sin that one believer has committed against another believer, and we have to resolve this sin. So they treat it more as a sin than as a crime, and so you don't report sin to the cops, and so I guess that's why they chose, in many instances, not get police involved. That doesn't sound exactly like what was going on here. This sounds more like the pastor tells us, what we need to do. And so whatever he, he says we're going to do, we're just going to do. And it wasn't the only theology involved was you don't question the man of God. Is that, is that right? 
Yeah, that's that's for a large part um, what it is. I think you do get some of that philosophy of you have to confront your the one who has sinned against you, and um, maybe they'll confess, maybe they won't. I've heard of people who say their pastor said, well, we need at least two witnesses, and the alleged abuse victim didn't count. So two, it never Two happened. witnesses to a rape besides the person who was raped? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, and there's, I mean, there is also, aside from the philosophy of pastoral authority, in a lot of the more extreme independent fundamental Baptist churches, there's an idea that you don't want to take your problems into the secular world. Mm-hmm. We don't, they don't necessarily trust the secular authorities. Um, so why would they get involved? And you take that even further and, people will often say, well, this is just the devil trying to bring down a good man of God. And you also found that this took place in like the lower levels of pastoral leadership. So a student pastor or music pastor or something, music director, something like that. And they would be, you know, reported to the, to the senior pastor or whatever. And not only would in some of these instances, they not be fired or disciplined in, in some meaningful way, uh, they'd actually help them find a position in another independent fundamental Baptist church where they could go and probably repeat the same behaviors, uh, having never, I mean, they're under the radar this entire time. Was that, was that common? Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely happened frequently. And it's interesting because we're talking about these independent fundamental Baptist churches, like independent is literally in the name. So yeah. <laughs> they claim they have, it's, it's, but so they say, Oh, we have no affiliation out with anyone outside of our local church. But if you actually do some digging into that, that's technically not true. There's networks created by these Bible colleges, pastoral friendships made through uh, conferences. And so it does end up forming this loosely affiliated network of churches, colleges, camps, what have you, that allows um, alleged abusers to move church to church. Has any of the attitude about it changed uh, over time? So I'm old enough to remember when Jack Hiles was alive and preaching and, you know, I had his sermon tapes. I don't think I ever heard him in person, but certainly I heard sermon tapes that were contemporary with his ministry. So I'm not talking about like, you know, after he did, I found a tape, but you know, these were issued. I got them and, and heard them. Um, now, and he's been dead for quite some time. His influence was on the wane already before he died. Mm-hmm. Has there been any shift, uh, over the time in which he was very influential through today where, the idea of we don't report this, we just go to the pastor is starting to change or is it still so drilled down that it's surprising if a person goes around the pastor and goes straight to the police? Again, I think you have to take that pastor by pastor. There are some pastors who are being very outspoken about this cover up has to stop and they're getting a lot of flack for it. But in so many of the cases that I've, found in the post tiles influence years that's still the philosophy i'm thinking specifically of um faith baptist church in wildmar california which has been in the news for the last few months because this is all coming out and the philosophy there was we're not going to be calling law enforcement 
do they call law enforcement if one church member kills the other one? One would think so, but I have not. Uh, or if somebody embezzles a bunch found of money in that. If somebody embezzles a bunch of money, if somebody embezzles a million dollars from the church budget, do they just you know tell them to apologize to everybody and take up another offering the next week? I mean, is is this is sexual abuse the only one of these issues on on a major level? I'm not talking about you know calling somebody a name. Mm-hmm. Uh, an actual illegal act, breaking the law. Is this the only one where they're like, oh, we can handle this in-house? And if so, is it because it's usually one of the pastors involved? I think it's there is more of a tendency to keep sexual abuse in-house rather than somebody embezzling, though maybe I could be wrong. There could be a whole... I, I would be surprised if there's a whole network of embezzlers, to be honest. <laughs> but <laughs> if so, if someone find, if Someone has otherwise called me. I'm very interested in hearing about it. You can tweet Sarah um, too. <laughs> tweet your tips. I can always be found on Twitter. That's right. Usually, usually grossing about food or some such. <laughs> but so sexual abuse, I think you have a few issues that will make people want to keep it in house. One, uh, independent fundamental Baptist churches have a very strict hierarchy. It's pastor, the men, wife children. So women and children are at the very, very, very bottom. Mm. Um, So it's hard to speak up loudly when you're conditioned to not have a voice. Another philosophy is this very strong influence, um, excuse me, strong emphasis on modest dress to the Mm. point that girls as young as second grade are being told, close your legs, wear a long skirt because you don't want to cause a man to stumble. So from a young age, you learn that as a woman, the onus to prevent your own sexual assault is on you. And then again, you go back to the man of God philosophy. You don't want to question the pastor, the youth pastor, um, because that seems like questioning God. Mm-hmm. And if you make and I've, if you make the church look bad, then you're not going to bring more people to Jesus, mm-hmm. and you'll be responsible for people going to hell for making the church look bad. If you know me, you know I love coffee. In fact, I love it so much, I even roast it for my family. Prayer House Coffee is a micro-roaster of specialty grade. Johnny down at Prayer House Coffee is the guy who supplies all of my coffee beans. Their coffee is meticulously sourced and roasted to bring out sweetness and balance. It's whole bean, roasted to order. All podcast listeners of Uncommentary use Uncommentary, all caps, to get 10% off that's the coupon code, Uncommentary. And if you order over $30 in value, you get free shipping, and Johnny ships on the spot. I usually get it in a couple of three days. Go to prayerhousecoffee.com today, look at what they have to offer, and don't forget to use Uncommentary, all caps, as your coupon code, and get 10% off. No one wants to be forgotten. You have a story to tell, a message to share. We all do. Your message matters too much to miss your opportunity. Time is ticking, though. None of us knows how many days we have left. If you're going to share your message with the world, get started today. You have a book to write, a blog post to compose, a book to finish. Too busy? No experience writing? No problem. You need a ghostwriter. For more information, contact my friend Tobin Perry. He'll help you get your message out. Check his website at TobinPerry, T-O-B-I-N-P-E-R-R-Y dot com. Wow. Um, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, something you just said about the two-year-old girls, you know, two- and three-year-old girls being told something. I'm like, as you were thinking, I'm like, is is nobody thinking there's a problem with a man 
who'd be tempted by a two or three year old girl who's wearing a short, you know, <laughs> wearing a short Sunday dress. Where, where is the emphasis here? The emphasis is mostly on you, the girls and women not allowing, I think in their phrasing, um, their brother in Christ to stumble and yeah. fall. Yeah. And the onus is very much on women. Like I remember this one girl was telling me a story of, I think she was in, I don't remember the exact age, but it was definitely elementary school. And her teacher said, okay, if at any point I clap my hands during class, you have to put your legs together. And so in the middle of class, this teacher would clap her hands and all the girls who had their legs kind of a little spread apart or would have to push them together. And that was this really early quote unquote modesty training. Wow. Um, so <laughs> that's just, wow. Um, so I can tell you that a lot of the influence, uh, in, in my personal experience was from, uh, the Bill Gothard seminars. Um, he mm -hmm. was, he was respected amongst the independents, but he was also respected highly among some really influential Southern Baptist leaders. And I went to, I can't even begin to tell you how many seminars, both the basic seminar and the advanced seminar, uh, from my teenage years up into my adulthood. Mm -hmm. And there is a tremendous emphasis on modesty. And the, the scripture that's used is uh, that a person should not go beyond and defraud their brother. Um, mm. There was a lot less emphasis put on how dudes could defraud girls than there was on how girls could defraud dudes. Uh, so it, it never seemed to me like there was a balanced presentation of Okay, so if the scripture teaches modesty, then how does it apply equally? Why is it only mm -hmm. applied and heavily applied to the females? And the guys are never really brought into it at all, except that if you're a girl and you don't dress modestly, you're going to cause guys to stumble, and then you're going to be held responsible for it. Mm -hmm. The one uh, bit of, I don't know if I want to, I think equality might be a stretch. I mean, there is such an emphasis on purity and both men and women. Mm -hmm were expected to remain pure. So that wasn't um, on its face a double standard. But I found if um, someone did even have consensual sex before marriage, it was usually the woman that would face the brunt of the consequences for it rather than her male partner. Because, of course, he couldn't, he couldn't say no to her wiles, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Gothard, of course, has his own issues that have arisen in the last two or three years. Um, but early in your story, uh, the IFB story, early in your story, you mentioned Jack Hiles' son, Dave Hiles. Um, so I'm 50-whatever-five years old, I think, and um, I've been hearing stories about Dave Hiles. I, I'm not kidding you, for decades. I mean, I was a young preacher, and I was already hearing mm -hmm. stories, rumors, you know, whatever about Dave Hiles. So you have a story, you have him in this report that you've done, but didn't he like start addressing you on Facebook or something after the story was released? He's never really addressed me on Facebook per se. And to be clear, I tried in a hundred different ways to get him to comment. He hung up on me when I called his cell phone, uh, sent him a letter with, I think, almost 50 explicit written questions asking him to respond to each of them. And he re returns the envelope to me with the line refused. Wow. So 
we made an effort. Yeah. Um, yeah, but he has a uh, Facebook group for his called Fallen in Grace, and what he's currently doing now is restoring fallen the fallen like fallen pastors especially and i don't he hasn't really responded explicitly to me he hasn't mentioned as far as i can tell in that group the stories by name or me by name but he posts a lot about how um people can't stay in the victim mindset forever and you need to move on from your sin to accept grace and what have you so Follow me on Twitter, and I usually tweet a uh, Dave Hiles post every day. It's become a routine. <laughs> you're his, uh, you're his surrogate Twitter account. <laughs> I am. He doesn't. I mean, he might have a burner one, but I don't think he has an official one. <laughs> oh man! So, um, talk to uh, listeners out who are pastors, because um, there will be some. I, I don't have any idea how many, but there'll be some. Um talk to us, talk to we who are pastors, um, about how to, um, assuming that the pastor is not the one who's guilty. Let's just, let's just, (laughs) let's just simplify it one step at least. Let's assume that the pastors who are listening are not guilty of sexually assaulting someone and trying to cover it up. But But if you are listening and you have, please repent long and and hard about what you did and go to the the cops, go turn yourself in. Absolutely. Um, but if you're not, but we deal with staff and we deal with, you know, people within our mm-hmm. congregations, whether it's the chairman of deacons or whoever. Um, and these kinds of uh, accusations can arise. What is the proper procedure under the law when a sexual, a sexual accusation is made to a person like a pastor or a staff member or a religious teacher? You must call the police if you have a reasonable suspicion of if you even have a suspicion of child abuse, I'm not sure uh, the exact phrasing of the law in each state, but it's called a mandatory reporter law. Mm-hmm. And very often clergy, almost always teachers are mandatory reporters. So it is quite actually breaking the law in many states if you suspect child abuse, but choose to keep it in-house and not report it. I would push it even farther and say that it's not, it's not for the pastor to decide whether it's a reasonable accusation or not. Uh, if the accusation is made to me, if somebody comes to me in a counseling mm-hmm. setting, and I have said this many times to people that I've counseled, if they start down a road that sounds like it's going to be very revelatory, I will say to them, I do not have uh, non-reporter status. If you tell me something that you've done or that you have knowledge of that's illegal, then I'm required to report. So you need to be careful what you say uh, in in that regard. Uh, but if they just, if somebody comes to me and says, I need to tell you that the X, Y, Z has happened to me, then I'm not going to call the person that they are reporting on. That's not my responsibility. If it's an illegal act, I'm not talking again, we're not talking about calling names here. Uh, mm-hmm. But if it's the, the breaking of the law, if somebody says to me, so and so sexually assaulted me in the choir room, then it's my responsibility to report that to the police, let them do the investigating. And then if there's a spiritual component that needs to be addressed, if they find out it's true, that's where my responsibility comes in, not to do the investigation and determine whether the police need to be called. Yeah, and there was a case, um, and the case actually that got me started down this road over in uh, Mesquite, Texas, there pastor of this church called Open Door Baptist was 
actually arrested for failure to report abuse. And I think from what I'd heard, he'd been conducting an internal investigation, but he'd known, I think, about for two weeks, not gone to law enforcement, then law enforcement figured out that he knew. Wow. Allegedly knew. So he he hasn't uh, gone to trial yet. Yeah. And it's not common. I haven't seen a ton of arrests for um, failure to report, but I... I'm sure, especially in our current day and age, it's something that will happen more and more. In your experience, I bring this up because I think it always comes up in conversations with pastors when when we're talking about these kinds of things. In your experience and in the research that you've done and in talking to whomever, how common is a false accusation of sexual assault or, uh, or rape between a person who's a member of a church and their spiritual authority? I don't, I don't know any specific statistics on a church member accusing a spiritual authority. However, decades of academic research have shown that false accusations of sexual assault are extremely, extremely low. And the reason is, I don't think that would be any different. I don't think that would apply any differently in a church scenario. Yeah, especially in the churches you're talking about because the, the pressure on the accuser is immense uh, to recant or they're just found guilty because they were a party to it and especially if they were a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to pivot just a little bit. This has been, this has been pretty heavy. So I want to pivot to... <laughs> this has been grim. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, not to something joyful necessarily, uh, but oh, I'm, never I'm, mind that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna play off another movie about something grim, which is Spotlight, uh, because oh, there's a um, yeah because there's a scene in there where they're talking about how you come on a story. I think uh, maybe the new editor Marty Baron maybe asks mm-hmm. how do you come on you know how do you choose your stories, and the Michael Keaton character basically just says, "Well, we just sit around and do nothing until one falls in our lap." He didn't say that. He just says, "We troll around." <laughs> We troll around and it can take, you know, two or three months. And then we find a story and work on it for however long, several months. Mm-hmm. So uh, in that type of journalism, and I don't know if you're still considered an investigative journalist or not, but in, in that type of journalism where you're doing those kinds of reports that take months and months and months to do, how long does it, wh- what are you doing in the meantime? I mean, you guys just sitting by the pool and, and staying on Twitter and is like, oh, there's something. If someone wants to, pay, if someone wants to pay me to sit, I don't want to be. To be clear, I do not want to be on Twitter all the time. I do not like it. I deleted Facebook from my phone. I only have Messenger on my phone because I can't stand it. If someone wants to pay me to sit pool with a book and maybe a cocktail, like hit me up. I am will accept your job offer. So, no. Basically, what you're doing is you're especially if you're new to a city, new to a beat, um, read everything you can, meet people, meet the people who know more than you do, get sources, again, just by like meet and greets, mm-hmm. um, file some records requests. But I mean, the reason this stuff takes so long is it's so, like these in-depth reports, like you have to know it backwards and forwards. So I'm thinking back to this independent fundamental Baptist story. I completely stumbled upon it by accident. And I didn't, and like you said in the beginning, I mean, I didn't know a Baptist church from a Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't have that in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. Certainly not Eastern Massachusetts. <laughs> and 
And the first two odd, probably three months for me were just this excessive learning period of like, I'm talking to people and asking really basic questions, reading everything that's ever been written. I think I ordered in the end somewhere between 30 and 40 books on the subject from my King James Bible to old sermons to uh, religious history books. And I even would, I ended up going back to a bunch of my early sources and just saying like, Hey, I knew pretty much nothing when we talked. I have a lot more intelligent questions to ask mm-hmm. you now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're so always doing something. <laughs> <laughs> so after you did all your research, and this is just a personal interest question to me, after you did all your research, uh, how long did it actually take you to write the story itself? Is this like you sat down and, and caffeined up and eight hours later you hit send? Or is it a week process? How long does it take to write a story mm, like that? Depends on the, depended, it, it'll depend on the story. There were some that I got off the ground in a few days. Some took longer. But then, of course, it's you go back and forth with the edit process. So that's its own animal. Sometimes for me, at least, like I, and I'll very often just like see the top part. Like I know exactly what I want the top part to be and the feel that I want it to have. Mm-hmm. And so if I ever, even if I'm not in the writing stage and I get that idea, I'll just write it down somewhere. So, cause God knows the next day when my head is full of a hundred other things, it will be gone yeah. and I'll be frustrated. Yeah. That's the life of any writer too. Um, so now you're in Houston and you're covering the independent fundamental restaurant scene. Is that what's going on? Oh, I would love to. The food here is incredible. I had the best Indian of my life last night. It was this place Anthony Bourdain went, hole in the wall. Oh. And I was extremely happy. See, that kind of made me jealous when you invoked his name. Yeah, I, I know. I, I texted my dad, who is a consummate foodie as well, and he hates me a little bit right now. My, uh, my, um, my, my bad confession is that I'd never watched Anthony Bourdain, not for one single minute until he committed suicide. Well, now you can make up for your I sin. Have, I've, I have, uh, I have atoned. I have watched a lot of Anthony Bourdain can, and I'm really see, sorry. Grace, that I him. We can yeah. all find it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, awesome. Um, no, but I'm working. I mean, I think I'll always be working on the independent fundamental Baptist spillover because I mean, after this series ran, a bunch of people contacted me. So there's a lot to wade through, but yeah. my main focus in life right now is housing, which is a whole other world. And it's completely fascinating and completely messed up in Houston. Mm. And so, but on those days where, and again, I'm only three weeks into this job, but on those days where I think like, holy like, asterisk, 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 I don't know anything. I think, you know, if a casual Jew from Massachusetts could learn the independent fundamental Baptists, how hard can housing really be? And then <laughs> you started researching it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, government, I mean, you're talking about government housing. Or are you talking about like who can qualify for loans? I mean, I don't want you to spill trade secrets oh. or whatever, but. No, there's no real trade secrets. Um, pretty much all of the above, like okay. government housing, assisted housing, uh, affordability crisis. And in Houston, I mean, everything's changed after Harvey. So yeah. everybody's got a hand and figure in covering the recovery here. Yeah. My guest today on Uncommentary has been reporter extraordinaire, Sarah Smith of the Houston Chronicle. 
Sarah, thanks. I'm going to be adding that to my resume, by the way, reporter extraordinaire. Yeah, but you have to say, uh, as spoken by Marty Duran, you have to add that Done. part. Deal. Awesome. Can do. So where are you on Twitter? Remind everybody. Sarah E. Smith 23. Sarah because e. Smith 23. when your parents name you Sarah Smith, you can have nothing without a number. <laughs> Love you, mom and dad. <laughs> that is true, because when I went to Skype and everywhere else, it's like, wow, how do I find her? <laughs> Exactly. Cool. But the thing is, it's good because I feel like if I end up committing a crime and there's a Sarah Smith in the crime log, like I have plausible deniability. Oh, my word. That's not it's me. Like, That's someone it's else. like you're writing your own Agatha Christie book here. I am. Wow. That's the real trade secret. Well, thanks for joining me. And uh, I would really love to have you back at some point after you break some other crazy news story. <laughs> I would love to be back. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Uncommentary. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. When you get a chance, if you would rate and review uh, Uncommentary in your favorite podcatcher, mostly iTunes, I guess, but uh, whichever one you use, whether it's Overcast or Podbean, if they have a rating system or review system, if you would take a few moments to do that, that'd be awesome. It takes about 10 seconds to, uh, to rate and about three sentences to review. Um, doesn't, doesn't take a lot. So we're over 60 on ratings and almost a 30, I think on reviews on iTunes. If we can get to 150 respectively, that'll be awesome. Uh, if you're interested in supporting uncommentary financially, uh, you can do a one-time gift at paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron for as little as two bucks a month, swag level three bucks a month, you can do that at Patreon patreon.com slash uncommentary that's patreon.com slash uncommentary now if you'd like to advertise and i can always use advertisers then email me marty duran at yahoo.com and i'll get you a rate sheet for the remainder of season one and then as soon as season two becomes available i'll send you one of those as well you can follow me on twitter at marty duran follow the podcast at uncommentary pod and tell your friends and relatives and everyone you know to listen to uncommentary Till next episode, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Solideo Gloria. <laughs>